cut it. If we can get it in our minds that the judgment is, a, is an opportunity, uh, then I think we've, we've gone a long way in, in our, our spiritual development. I can't say that I'm, I'm at that point yet because it is, it is a fearful thing to have everything revealed and our hearts opened up uh, at that time. But it is, it, it is definitely, uh, the way it is set up, it is, it is certainly an opportunity. Um, Matthew 25, 21 though. His Lord said unto me, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. How can we now fully comprehend the utter joy that will accompany these words until they are heard and received? How can we comprehend it? When have we ever received news as joyful as this? For the faithful, death is swallowed up in victory. The mortal will put on immortality. Sin nature replaced with spirit nature. Sadness will be turned to jubilation. Shame turned into triumph. Weakness turned into strength. Sickness turned into perfect health and invigoration. The status of an heir is then turned into the status of an inheritor. Let me repeat that because there's confusion in our community about this right now. The status of an heir is then turned into the status of an inheritor. An heir, we've not received it yet. As inheritors, we will then receive the promise that is given. It belongs to the future, brothers and sisters, where we have some who call themselves Christadelphians. I don't want to keep hammering on this and I, I, I believe Brother Adams could have talked more about this. But, these are things that we are looking forward to in the future. It is not something that we now have. The inheritance of eternal life, of a kingdom, of land, and of everlasting salvation. At that point, will the faithful servant receive possession of such things? Not now, but then and only then. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Christ speaks of the rewards offered in beautiful and symbolic language. And before moving on, it is worth our consideration. The phrase is repeatedly used to him that overcometh, followed by the reward that is to be given. The word overcome is a proper translation, but the word conquer, the word conquer, may better express the emphasis of the Greek language. So it's not necessarily to him that overcometh, but to him that conquers. And brothers and sisters, what is it that we are trying to conquer now? The flesh. The flesh. The reward of eternal life is referenced most frequently in the second and third chapters of Revelation with different symbolic language used that draws on the types and shadows that are very present throughout the scriptural record. And that's where we want to focus on the, on the things that are to your left. Eternal life. And we, didn't, we don't put these in order the way that they appear in, in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Um, but we've kind of, cl- kind of classified them just for our consideration this morning. So we'll, we'll jump around a little bit. But first of all, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. This is to the Ephesians. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise or garden of God. 
Through one man's sin, access to the tree of life was denied with the way of the tree of life guarded by the cherubim flame. And man was cast out of the garden. We are still outside of the garden. Through one man's righteousness and overcoming and condemnation of the sin flesh nature through death, access was made available to the tree of life, as well as entrance into the garden and all that represents. We must again note that these are not current benefits to the believers. Now, our access to it, to have the opportunity to get to that point, yes, is a current benefit. But actually being in the garden, partaking of the tree of life itself, are those things that belong only to those who overcome. We are not yet able to eat of the tree of life. We are not currently back in the garden. These things are strictly, undeniably, and without question reserved, as Christ clearly promises, to him that overcometh or conquereth. Now, how can there be any confusion about that? Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, to those of Smyrna, He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. The judgment seat is a picture of extremes. To Christ's left, we see the excruciating mental agony that would go along with rejection and sentence to extermination. And on the right, we see an extreme sense of elation and that eternal joy that has just begun. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? As we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, quote out of the Psalms. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. To those of Pergamos it was said, I give to eat of the hidden manna. Jesus is the antitype of the manna that appeared in the wilderness. We know that a pot, an omer, of manna was hidden in the ark of testimony. The ark also being a type of who? Christ. Likewise, immortality Eternal life is currently hidden with Christ in the heavens, awaiting dispersion at His return. Interestingly enough, when the ark rested in Solomon's temple, there was no pot of manna found in the ark. When the ark rested in Solomon's temple, there was no, no manna in the ark. Considering that Solomon's kingdom was a type of Christ's future reign, it is a fitting symbol as to the fact that immortality, eternal life, are the same thing, will no longer be hidden during the future kingdom. And this precious gift dispersed freely to him that overcometh. Also given is a white stone. Speaking in a judicial sense, it was the custom to hand one who was found innocent of a crime a white stone as a sign of acquittal. The guilty were given a black stone. In social circles, the white stone was also a sign of friendship and acceptance. Those who have not lived according to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus will stand condemned to death under such a law and therefore will not receive the white stone of innocence or acceptance. For those who find acceptance, the white stone of approval, and therefore eternal life will be theirs. Revelation 3.5 To those of Sardis 
He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. This is to be clothed in immortality. Having been made constitutionally clean and clothed with the righteousness of Christ at our baptism, we then see the putting on of the divine nature upon acceptance at the judgment. The physical change that we still await. And we know in 1 Corinthians, let's, let's do that. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 through 57. 53 through 57. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is also promised in the same place, I will not blot thy name out of the book of life. There are pluralities of books that must be considered here. And again, as we go through this, I know that each one of these phrases, each one of these 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 promises that are given, and we could spend probably a whole hour, on, if not more, on just each one of these phrases. So as we, we're, we're going through it very fast. This is just a summary. Uh, so we, we apologize if some, if some important points are, are left out. Uh, but there are a plurality of books that are mentioned, and this is one of those subjects that really could a lot could be spent here. In Revelation chapter 20, uh, though a portion of the chapter is in reference to the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, verses 12 through 15 actually recollects or looks back at the manner in which the saints have been judged and the bride of Christ formed according to Brother Thomas's translation of the Greek. It speaks of books that have been opened, books in which contained a record of deeds in which the lives of believers are judged, and of another or separate book that is called the Book of Life or the Book of the Life. The probationary lives of believers throughout the ages are spoken of as being recorded in symbolic books. We can compare it to a book of facts or a daily journal in which actions and inactions, good or bad, are recorded for future reference. And, and all of this is all in God's mind, of course. All those covenanted to find themselves in such a book. All those covenanted find themselves in such a book. And through our great high priest, we currently pray to have transgressions that are recorded blotted out of this book. In Psalm 51.9, we read, Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Psalm 51.9 But the goal of every faithful believer is for our name to appear in this final transcript or copy that is referred to as the book of the life. Those deemed as unfaithful will not have their name permanently transferred or inscribed in the book of the life. Those who are found faithful will find a permanent place in the finalized book without fear of being blotted or erased from its pages. 
Other promises spoken of that expand further upon the reward of eternal life. On the other side, on the right hand side, Revelation 2.17, a new name. With the white stone inscribed therein will be a new name. Jesus gave His leading apostles new names, which reflected their personal attributes or divine purpose. Unlike the names we receive now, which are usually chosen because they sound good or they are copied from someone respected, it would seem very likely that this new name will reflect the righteous characteristics of the one accepted, a name that truly describes the person's ability, character, or responsibility in the kingdom, a name that is rewarded by divine observation of the individual's personal experience in overcoming, which can only be fully understood or appreciated by the one given the name, or indicates an aspect of the divine glory in which they will reflect. Proverbs tell us a good name is what? Then what? Then great and loving favor rather than what? Silver and gold. That's right. So a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. And may we be given such a name. Revelation 2.26 He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end to him will I give power over the nations. And we're going to talk more about that as well, uh, time permitting. Those of apostate Christianity offer views of eternal life as lounging in clouds and playing harps for all eternity. The reward, though a rest of the labors and trials of the flesh, will not be one of idleness. In Genesis 22:17, the promise is made to Abraham that thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. The seed is in reference to Christ and the promise that he would rule. Though Christ will in fact control absolute sovereignty, a promise of authority is also given to those who overcome or conquer. Now, again, we wish to, to consider this more a bit later, but reading from Daniel 7:27. Uh, for the time being, uh, to, to hold us over. Daniel chapter 7, 27. We'll get to turn that up, please. And again, these, these aren't, these aren't just words. I mean, these, as we talked about it in some of our opening comments, these things are real. And it doesn't seem at times, they, they seem like nice things that make us feel good for the present, but, but these are real things that will transpire. Daniel 7.27 And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Now along with this promise, is connected to the symbolic language, the morning star. And I will give him the morning star. According to Revelation 22.16, the morning star is another title given to Christ himself. In Revelation 22, Christ is referred to as the morning star. Literally speaking, 
The morning star is Venus, which during certain times of the year shines brightly and dominantly in the eastern sky just before the rising of the sun. Um, and for those of you who don't get up that early, and I try not to, is when in the in the evening sky also during some times of the year we will also see Venus, and it, it, it's its brightness is is really an incredible. Sometimes you wonder if it's if it's uh, a plane coming at you or something other than than a star or a planet. We know that heavenly bodies such as the firmament, sun, moon, and stars are scripturally used to represent political authority. Christ is the morning star that will be set in the political heavens at the dawning of the coming age. He's also referred to as, as, as the sun as well uh, in other symbolic language that can go along with that. At the dawn of creation, the angels were spoken of as morning stars. And we're not going to look it up, but Job 38.7, if you're taking notes. The angels themselves were referred to as morning stars. Uh, Luke chapter 20 tells us that the saints will be made equal unto the angels. Therefore, he has promised to those that overcome a portion of this star position to be made a part of the new millennial ruling class shining brightly in the political heavens. This forcefully, forcefully brings to our minds the words of our hymn, Who are these like stars appearing, these before God's throne who stand? And if you read that hymn and you read it slowly and you read through all of it, uh, it's very awe-inspiring as to the promises that we, we hope to achieve too. 3.21 Revelation 3.21 To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. The Father's throne, where Christ currently resides at the right hand, is not to be confused, and unfortunately it is being confused even among believers, is not to be confused with the future Davidic throne, which as of yet is not possessed by Christ, but will be. Quoting from Elpis Israel, page 312 in the, in the newest Logos version, Brother Thomas says this, But where are the kingdom and throne of David? In answer to this question, reader, mark it well. At present, they exist nowhere. That's the words that Brother Thomas said some 150 years ago and then 150 years later we have Christadelphians so-called that would call that garbage. In the Greek text, the grammar of the term as I also overcame indicates something more prophetic in nature rather than something already fulfilled. Though Christ has overcome the flesh, an overcoming of the principalities of this earth still remain to be done. The throne mentioned is one of future establishment described in symbolic detail in the 4th and 5th chapters of Revelation. Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father awaiting the fulfillment of Ezekiel 21. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. And what? Until he come who right it is. That time has not yet come. The throne still awaits reestablishment and its rightful occupant. 
There is no present or spiritual application to this matter. Then and only then will Christ be able to delegate the power that is associated with that throne to the redeemed. As we have already considered, this is a matter of promise and not one of present possession. Revelation 3.12 To him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of God. Turning to 2 Corinthians 6.16. If we could turn there please. 2 Corinthians 6.16 Concerning the saints, Paul makes this statement. He says, For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. To be a pillar is to be a principal and indispensable part of a structure. A structure is not held up without pillars. Especially, especially the architecture that, that this time period was familiar with. But the structure is made out of people, a people who God has redeemed. A holy structure, as in the case of the wilderness tabernacle in Solomon's temple, that is filled with the Shekinah glory, a habitation of Yahweh. In Solomon's temple, there were two pillars layered in brass at its entrance. One was given the name of Yakin. He will establish. And the other called Boaz. In him is strength. Put together we have, he shall establish in strength or by strong ones. He, being Yahweh, shall establish in strength or by strong ones. The symbolic temple mentioned here will be established by God's strength manifested through those who have overcome. The next issue brought up is given the name of God and New Jerusalem. Now, we have already discussed the new name to be inscribed on the white stone. But here, this matter is expanded even further. It says, I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the New Jerusalem, and my new name. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, more specifically verses 9 and 10, we have these words concerning Israel. The Lord shall establish thee an holy people unto himself, and all people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of Yahweh. In Acts chapter 15, we have the memory verse, Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles. To take out of them the people for what? For His name. God has been and continues to take out of both the Jews and Gentiles a people to bear His holy name. Those who share and embrace the faith of Abraham, who are covenant to God through the sacrifice of His Son, and who overcome or conquer the trials and tribulations of the flesh. These will be chosen to eternally bear the memorial name of Yahweh, or more fully here applied, Yahweh Elohim, He who will be mighty ones. This is the name that we wish to bear. 
Added to this is the name of the New Jerusalem. We anxiously await the day when the literal city of Jerusalem will be the political, religious, and cultural capital of the entire earth, as is spoken of extensively and explicitly by the prophets of Israel. But what is promised here goes beyond the natural application. In Revelation 21, we have a more detailed and symbolic explanation of this new Jerusalem. And what the angel informs the apostle John, come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Therefore, the new Jerusalem, apocalyptically speaking, is a symbol of the bride of Christ or the redeemed. To be called under such a name is to be counted as a part of that glorious multitude whose eternal citizenship is founded upon the blessings entailed under the new or everlasting covenant. In Galatians 4.26, we read this, But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us. Actually, the phrase goes on, of us all, but all is not in the original. So, Galatians 4.26, But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us. And in Psalms 87.5, if we could turn to that, please. I know some of this, I kind of go too fast for you to turn up, but Psalms 87, verse 5. And of Zion it shall be said, This and that man was born in her, and the highest himself shall establish her. The Lord shall count when he writeth or enrolleth, is a better translation of writeth, the Lord or Yahweh shall count when he writeth or enrolleth up the people that this man was born there. This is what we want to be attached to. This is the name that we wish to be called under eternally. Along with such citizenship, they will be given a new name that in this context, this context here, has reference to being given a name of power and authority to execute divine justice and to minister to the nations as was given to Christ. It's not necessarily a literal new name, as we've already discussed that. That's already mentioned as an earlier promise. But it is a name of authority and of power. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. This is what God has given to Christ. A name that is above every name. In other words, a name of absolute uh, and unerring authority. And finally, regarding these promises, as they are summarized in, in Revelation 2 and 3, it says that Christ will confess our name before the Father. Now, this is not the last listed in the, in the letter to the seven ecclesias. It's found in Revelation 3, 5. But we mention it last due to the impression that it must make on us. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. We have already considered the significance of a name and the promise of a new name. But here we see our name as something that is accepted with divine approval. If we are currently set apart from the world, 
the world accepts us not. If we hold fast to the truth, even among some of those who we have called brethren that may not hold fast the truth, we proclaim, and therefore they reject us. We have no place in this current system. But in Matthew chapter 10 we read, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. Luke chapter 12, we have a similar promise. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Connected to each of these passages, Jesus adds that to deny him will mean public denial before God and the angels. For Jesus to positively and publicly acknowledge us before the Father and the angelic host is an honor that infinitely belittles the petty honors that man bestows upon other men. It will be fully understood that to receive Christ's full endorsement and acceptance, the ultimate act of the right hand of fellowship, at the expense of the acceptance of this world, provides a supreme feeling of warmth and acceptance that will make the vain and fleeting rejections of the past all but forgotten. But for those who have sought after the acceptance of their fellow men, Christ will coldly respond, I know you not. Now, at this time, the spiritual bride in perfection and beauty is joined in marriage with Christ. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let's, let's turn there. And this takes a little explanation here. More probably needs more explanation than what we have time for this morning. Revelation 19.7 Actually, backing up to verse 6. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, or it should be past tense, hath come, and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now, a distinction needs to be made between what is here referred to as the marriage of the Lamb and what is referred to in verse 9 as the marriage supper. It is important to note that the two phrases represent two different events, times, and locations. The marriage of the Lamb, as here referenced, is past tense and refers back or is referring back to an event that had already taken place or precedes the general time that Revelation 19 points forward to. Revelation 19 on the whole speaks of events after the fall of the Roman harlot system. The marriage of the Lamb refers to the union between Christ and His saints that had already taken place at Sinai immediately following the judgment. The marriage supper will take place at Zion in celebration after the fall of the Roman harlot. This period of judgment, marriage, and the first encounters with the Gentile military forces encompasses a period known as 
the harvest period. And we're, this is again is another class or series of classes, but we, we put it up here just to try to add context to, to what we're talking about. A, a time period, a set time period that we are going to be covering. The time of judgment of the household and to the destruction of Gog. Uh, the, the time when the age-lasting gospel will be proclaimed, and we'll, we'll talk more of that. Uh, resistance of the beast nations, the harlot, uh, and, and beast nations, European nations, and the harlot, and other rebels against Christ's rule. The regathering of the Jews, all these take place during a set time period. Uh, and what we believe, what I believe to be a 50-year time period of what's considered to be a jubilee cycle. I know there's different opinions and thoughts on, on how quickly things will transpire once Christ returns. But I do believe that Christ, uh, just as God has always done, acts in a very methodical, step-by-step process. Uh, and as we look at the time of the judgment uh, of the household to the destruction of Gog, uh, follows, follows very closely in line from the, from, if we look at the, at the, uh, time periods under the, uh, under the law of Moses, uh, from the blowing of the trumpets, the feast of trumpets, uh, to the Day of Atonement, which was a 10-day period. And if we take that year, a day-for-year time periods, we come up with a 10-year a period. Um, how long this period lasts, we cannot be sure, but we heavily lean towards the suggestions that the period of the judgment and following fellowship, the following fellowship between Christ and His redeemed fits into a 10-year time period. And we'll bring this, this chart up uh, in, in further consideration. This falls after the type of the ten days between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. We also note that under the Mosaic Ordinance, there was an allowance for the young men of war to have one year with their new bride before entering into the field of combat. So it would seem that there will be some amount of time devoted to joyful fellowship before the judgments of God on the nation's commence. And there's also another chart. This is a much more detailed, a better chart. Mine is just a basic overview. This is done by Brother Al Bryan, uh, which provides even more detail. We make mention that we believe that all the work that has to be done from the moment that Christ raises the dead to when all hostilities cease and the world falls into complete rest under the rule of Christ and the saints will not be an overnight operation. Based upon the types found in the law in the harvest and vintage periods, the jubilee cycles, as well as prophetic time periods that are revealed to us regarding the final judgments, that we are looking at a 50-year time period from the resurrection to complete subjection of the nations. God has always developed events in a precise and methodical manner, even thinking to our own times. From the first Zionist Congress in 1898 to the establishment of Israel in 1948 was a 50-year process. The time for celebration will have to be temporarily put on hold. There will be monumental work to be done. And that is an understatement. Enemies to be destroyed. Israel to be saved from destruction and redeemed, and age-old promises to be fulfilled. During the time of judgment and of the joyous reunion of Christ and His true brethren, the world will have descended into madness and fury, seas and waves roaring. 
is the symbolic description. During this time, Russia and its confederacy, specifically identified by Ezekiel as Gog or Gog, by Daniel as the king of the north, by Joel as the northern army, with the blessing of the bishop of Rome and of many nations, both Christian and Muslim, will think an evil thought and will have made its grand move against the land of Israel, which is graphically described in the prophets with fury, jealousy, and covetousness invading it, according to the prophet Ezekiel, as a cloud to cover the land, is how Ezekiel describes it. The prophet Joel refers to this invasion as a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. Daniel refers to it by saying, He shall go forth, this king of the north, with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. Turn there to Daniel chapter 11, verse 45. And I know there's different opinions on how Daniel 11 fits into things to come, but I will stick to my convictions on, on the fact that I believe it's, it's things that are yet to transpire. Daniel chapter 11, verse 45. It says, And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain, this being Jerusalem in Israel. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. In verse 44, And he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. Bollinger makes the note in Bollinger's comments, To make away many means to devote many to extermination. That's the original meaning. To, vote, to devote many to extermination. This is what's going on when Christ and the saints are joined together. Regarding Jerusalem itself, Zechariah prophesies in 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 2, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity. This will be the day when for the first time in human history that the frightening image seen by Nebuchadnezzar in a dream and interpreted through Daniel by the operation of the Holy Spirit will completely stand. And I don't know, I just have this up here. I, I don't, I'm not saying that that uh, Putin himself is the man to organize all this, but certainly by the things that, that he's been doing with Russia over the past few years and just within the past few, few weeks and months are very remarkable in their aggression and, and, and knowing that, that Israel is not on Russia's good side, uh, even as we speak. So it's just amazing events that we're seeing that, that show the, uh, the rise of this autocrat um, this, who's even called a czar by the media, uh, and his aggression in completing his will. And as we go further with this, understanding that Nebuchadnezzar's image will stand, we have to understand that in the past it has only existed in parts, designated to kingdoms that have come and gone. But now with the Babylonian, Persian, Grecian, Roman, and the clay-iron mixture united as one fierce, arrogant, and brutal kingdom, 
with the object of destroying the Jews of Israel and controlling their land with political, economic, and religious motivations. A mighty, mighty conglomeration of nations under the authority of Gog that come down against Israel to put an end to this problem or what they perceive as a problem once and for all. But Yahweh through the instrument of His Son and of the Bride will openly reveal His own fury. The time of silence will have passed and the day of judgment upon the nations will have arrived. At Christ's first appearance, His non-threatening demeanor was compared to what? What was Christ in His, his first appearance? He was compared to what? A lamb. A lamb led to the slaughter. His second appearance He will be revealed as what? As a lion. As a man of war. As the lion of the tribe of Judah. And does anybody know where the, without looking where that phrase the lion of the tribe of Judah is found? I had to look it up. I, I'm sad to say I had to look it up. Revelation 5.5 5. That's easy to remember. Just you know, you know it's in the last book of the Bible. You know it's 5 and you know it's 5 again. Revelation 5.5 5. Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I didn't mean you to look that up because I just put that in your mind. But look at Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. And the language is, it should put, it should make the hair on, on, your, on the back of your neck stand up. When you realize, when we see what's going on in the world, we see the abuses. We see especially the abuses towards Israel. Um, the hatred that is directed towards her. Any, any move that Israel makes is not right. If they're merciful, they're, they're, they're still called bad. If they, if they take harsh action against their enemies, they're, they're bad. It doesn't matter what they do. There's nothing that they can do to satisfy the world. And it is a wonderful thing to think of, of the evil and wickedness that we see, what is going to be its end. Isaiah 42, verses 13 and 14. We're told, The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. Yahweh shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. And this is something to think about here. A lot of times we ask the question, why? Why does God allow the things to happen that we see going on? He says, I have a long time holding my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. There's a time coming very soon when He will no longer refrain. Isaiah 34.8 Isaiah 34.8 For it is the day of the Lord's or Yahweh's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. The instrument of this destruction will not be, as in times past, a hidden angelic force, but will be openly manifested through Christ and the redeemed saints. In other words, Yahweh Sabah, He who will be armies. Also under the title of Yahweh Elohim, 
he who will be mighty ones, or I will be mighty ones. Leaving the area of Sinai, they proceed to enact a series of events that will change the world forever. Stated many times, including in Psalm 37 and repeated by Christ in the Beatitudes is the promise. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Though the believers have been under strict command to refrain from the involvement in the political and military affairs of this present world, under Christ's authority, the command will be to put down and destroy all Gentile authority so that the inheritance might be seized. The inheritance will have to be forcefully taken. Psalm 149. And then we'll close for break. Psalm 149, starting verse 6. Actually, verse 5, excuse me. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God, or ale, power, be in their mouth, and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, this honor have all his saints. And we'll consider with our last lesson this morning this honor of destroying and subjecting the nations as we lead to the millennial age. We'll go ahead and take a break with that.